are you now or have you ever been a Muslim who has said Alu Akbar publicly in the streets? That's the funny thing, you know. They tried to pretend that this could never happen, even when all chicken shops were forced to carry the no halal served here certificate. And then there was the great Zamzam scare where everyone thought our water was flowing directly from Mecca and that this was the reason for the great conversion. A new report by the leading think tank British Rights Unite Values claims that the large consumption of meat by Muslims may point to the rising tide of radicalisation in the Muslim community. Supermarkets are said to be taking the report and its findings very seriously. A spokesman for one supermarket said, we are planning a series of new cookbooks targeting Muslims with vegetarian recipes. But I'm getting ahead of myself because there were so many other foreboding signs. The justice secretary, who turned Muslim and ensured every prison in the land was a five times a day tannoy for the Adhan, and of course that affected population flow, as Muslim communities moved closer to prisons and everyone else moved further away. In response, new churches started to be built with supersized bells in order to compete with the La ilaha illallah. Go report! Go report! If you think they are a danger, go to court. Muslims, Muslims, think we should cover up our limbs, even in summer. Now, no doubt, there will be times that you doubt your narrator and wonder about my extreme prejudices. Whose side am I on and where in history do I place myself? Am I a good Muslim? in a part of that prolific organisation proudly calling itself corrective rhetoric and propaganda. Let's come back to that question for another day. But now let me remind you of what was happening not so long ago. And look at this scene. No, 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 this isn't quite the right place. A statement from Ofsted released today said, Ah, this is the story I was looking for. A new controversial policy from Ofsted to question innocent Muslim young girls about why they wear the hijab has offended the Muslims. A statement from Ofsted released today said, We are committed to equality for all children, and particularly at-risk children, such as Muslims. We have with us today an Ofsted spokesman. Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So how will this new recommendation benefit Muslim girls? <laughs> For us at Ofsted, they are some of our favourite type of girls, especially after the Great British Bake Off. <laughs> it shows what they can do if they really, really try. Right. But on the question of hijabs and the idea that this is sexualizing children, how many people did you consult with? We consulted with a range of good Muslim women. Muslim women so steeped in our British values that they could be mistaken for Christian English women. Mm-hmm if it weren't for their uh, names or funny tinge. So, interview me. Imagine I'm a seven-year-old Muslim girl. I'm offended that you would think that we would not know how to talk sensitively to young Muslim girls. We are professional and... Prove it to us. And the people who doubt you. OK, well, uh, I would start by saying Salah Shalom Alaikum. Sir... It's assalamu alaikum. Yes, that's right. And I do like your scarf. Where where did you get it from? Mm, my mommy bought this for me. Would you like one? Oh, no, I'm not Muslim. The queen wears a scarf. Is she a Muslim? Oh, no, uh, we no, no, de de definitely not. We, we would never have a queen who is a... Uh, no, you know, look, 
This is a silly scenario, and I find it offensive that you think we do not know how to talk to Muslim girls, or we might be uh, or somehow bullying Muslim girls. And, uh, and you're not even Muslim. How do you know what they say? Well, we don't have any Muslims working here, so I'm speaking for them. And this was nothing compared to what was to come. Mosques forced to twin with Cocker Spaniels, a large sporting brand made a new logo for the religion Muslims were once free to practice. I'll see you next time. Hello, welcome to The Future is Muslim. The podcast that uses a dangerous dose of absurd humour with a side of serious chat to take a closer look at what it means to be Muslim today and in the future. I'm Latifa Akai. And I'm Rahil Mohammed, and this is the Maslaha podcast. So today we're really lucky to have Naima Khan in the studio with us. Um, Naima is a critic and a regular media commentator. She's on the board at the Inclusive Mosque Initiative and she was the programme manager of MFest 2018, a festival of Muslim culture and ideas. Hey Naima. Hello. Hey Naima. Thanks for inviting me guys. So we've heard a bit about Ofsted, we've heard a bit about the number of Muslims in prison and also prevent. I like the go report, go report. <laughs> I feel like that's kind of been in my head for a few days. <laughs> yeah, that, you couldn't have picked a better earworm. For <laughs> yeah, Rahel, well done. Honestly. Like this advert has been plaguing the nation for 10 years or something, <laughs> yeah. and you've just given it an even more sinister kind of <laughs> yeah. ring to it. Um, so Naima, what did you think? The bit that uh, I came away with most questions about is the stuff related to the criminal justice system. Okay. And that's because it's the biggest gap in my knowledge, but you two have expertise on this, so you can tell me a bit more about it. But um, I was fascinated by the idea of prisons as becoming the centre of Muslim communities. This is what I was curious about. What is it in your work life that has made you feel like this could be a significant thing to riff off of? Yeah, I mean, the, it's really... Um, I think the the number of Muslims in prison, I think, is a massive gap in in people's knowledge. So... I'm not going to drop loads of statistics, but like I think one statistic that I think is like really important to measure is the fact that the number of Muslim men in prison has like doubled mm-hmm. over like the past sort of 16 years. So, if Muslim communities make up four, four and a half, five percent of the general population, in prisons we make up 16 percent of the population. Mm-hmm. So that number has just been like rising and rising. And you mirrored this with the idea of the justice secretary being a Muslim person. <laughs> am, am I, do I take it you're responding to like Johnson's cabinet and his kind of, do you feel like this is strategic placing of brown faces and that strategic placing of Muslims is going to be a thing? I think what's interesting for me is the fact that there's been such an increase, but this, you hardly ever hear about why that increase has happened. So for me, I was partly playing with the idea about well, if the number of Muslim men just carry on increasing, like what's the what's the next stage? You know, mm-hmm. what's the kind of absurd mm. point that we might end up reaching? And the fact that, you know, the population in prison continues to rise, it's more Muslims. The families just have to get closer to those prisons to be able to see them. Um, yeah, so it was kind of almost like playing with the absurd idea that we might end up having a Secretary of State who eventually converts to Islam because... There are so many Muslims in prison. And because conversion is so, so powerful in prisons. Yeah. I thought yeah. that was that was the funny bit for me, is that through pot- potentially interaction with um, religion in the criminal justice system, that this person has done what, what it feels like a lot of prisoners might be doing, which is 
converting for safety or, mm. you know, associating themselves with Muslims for strategic purposes. Mm. Yeah. That's yeah. That's one of the things I, I I always say to Rahel. I think it's one of the most interesting things about some of the criminal justice work that, you know, we've been doing at Maslaha, which is that there is this idea with this increase in like Muslim men in prison. There's a kind of idea that this is this is linked to radicalization, and there's right. that whole narrative around prisons and radicalization in the last couple of decades. And so that thing that you just talked about, the idea of like people being seen to be more religious or people converting or is seen as a is a risk. It's seen as something that's like dangerous and something that is in some way a warning sign. Whereas when other people convert when other to other faiths in prison, that's seen as something that actually is a rehabilitative thing. It's something that could be seen as a positive thing. And, and through right. the work that we've been doing, we've heard from so many young men who actually for them in prison, faith and Islam was a really important part of their process of kind of like healing and kind of like and and dealing with what life could be outside again and also moving on outside. But that is totally contrary to the narrative that we see constantly in the media, which is around like risk and radicalization. Yeah, I mean, we've got a report coming out um, and actually by the time this airs, hopefully it should be out and it's called Time to End the Silence, the Experience of Muslims in Prison. And it just shows how the most basic things that we will take for granted, like praying or growing a beard or wearing certain clothes, is suddenly an example of, you're a radical Muslim. Um, and I think one of the most shocking things for me has been how every single Muslim man that we spoke to who'd been in prison spoke about how the threat of taking away Friday prayers was used. Mm. Um, and I'm just going to read a quote, actually, from, from somebody who'd been through the criminal justice system. And so he says, shut your mouth or you're never coming to Friday prayers again. When does he have the right and he is the prison officer. When does he have the right to tell me when I can go and pray to my Lord and when I don't have the right to pray to my Lord? And when he goes and tells the imam, the imam will listen to him and he won't let you come to Friday prayers. You have to pray as a group. It's not accepted if you pray on your own. And that that story is like heard over and over again. And there's there are you know very um, absolute mandatory guidelines about allowing prisoners to be able to practice their religion and, and, and their festivals. And I think... The, I think for me, it's why why are these stories not coming out? And, mm. and the the thing about prayer in prison, am I right in assuming that this is also a time to feel less alone mm. because you're with people? Yeah, and it's yeah. a it's a peaceful way of being with peaceful with people rather than being unsafe, being, feeling like you need to be combative or defensive or yeah. yeah in that environment. Yeah, there is an element of being written up as well. So prisoners don't know when they're written up in prison, mm-hmm. and they bec- and it becomes something that's logged in a security report. Um, that's incredibly sinister. To but, not be, be told this is what's happening with... But, but equally, I think that's what's mirroring what's happening in society right now with things mm-hmm. like Prevent. I think it's exactly the same. I think what prison almost does is that it, it shows those kind of inequalities and racism in a really honest, brutal way. Mm. It's just hidden. And I think in society, they're more camouflaged. But mm-hmm. I think those two things are happening... They're, they're both happening in parallel. I'm going to... Sorry, can I read another quote? <laughs> I'm going to keep reading quotes. But this is from Angela Davis. And I think I sort of... I keep reading this quote over and over again because it's so prophetic. But she says, I think we have to look at what's going on in prisons today in that respect as a signal of what might possibly come in the society as a whole. I think that it is probably a truism by now that in any given society, what goes on in the prisons reflects very important elements of the society as a whole. Mm. 
And definitely surveillance is is the, probably the clearest example of that. Yeah, I mean, the normalization uh, yeah. of surveillance. Yeah. yeah, I guess the is it see it say it sort it. Yeah. yeah. So this yeah. is the kind of most obvious, but also the most ignored kind of um, call to reporting mm-hmm. that we hear all the time on the mm-hmm. tube. And that and we've like just seen increasing and manifesting in so many different ways over the past like 10 years. But, yeah, and yeah. It's, it's a good example of the problematization that, like problematizing just being Muslim or expressing mm, Muslimness yeah. or doing yeah. something because you never, like that feeling of you never know what someone else is noticing and really mm-hmm. deepening our awareness of how other people are perceiving us mm. and how damaging and destabilizing that is. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Because um, I've seen like particularly men for some reason reading Quran on the tube, and I, I, I wouldn't have thought anything of it except for these adverts mm-hmm. yeah. and the idea that someone is doing this in a public space where people are already on high alert. Yeah. But for no like that, that shouldn't. Yeah. How do I say this? It's weird to be in a space where you're like I am consciously thinking. This is okay. This is not a problem. But someone else may well be unconsciously yeah. feeling, yeah. "I'm scared now because yeah. I don't know what this guy's going to do." And it's also that idea of like what that means to a sense of like general like well-being for people actually just being able to like leave their houses and like wander and go about your daily business. Like what that adds, especially to people who are like visibly read as Muslims. So that is just like it just is a constant. Where if you live in a climate where constantly those are seen as like risk factors and alarm bells, it just it just creates this like horrendous like maze of navigating everyday life and like there is consequences for that and there's consequences in people's mental health and people's like ability to like thrive in small ways in everyday life. I mean is it worth maybe mentioning we should actually say what prevent is probably I think just have it and how it Shall I give you my layman's understanding of yeah. Prevent and then you can mm-hmm. be yeah. like, it's so much worse. <laughs> yeah, <no. laughs> um, so I understand it as a government policy that came about in the, I think it had its origins in the late 90s and then it was ramped up after 9-11, mm-hmm. which is about preventing people becoming radical and being alert for signs of what radicalization is and how it happens. And that this is particularly rolled out in schools where teachers and other adult staff who come into interaction with children are are now required as part of their prevent duty to be on the lookout for radicalization in mm-hmm. children and that this is often linked to or comes under the umbrella of safeguarding in schools. Mm-hmm. That was a very succinct summary yeah, name. Really... No one else needs to say anything. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Is but it I mean, part of that's it. prison yeah. as well? Do they call it prevent in prison or is it yeah. something completely different? So prevent... It, yeah, it pretty much, I, I mean, I think Prevent has changed the DNA of the relationship between public services and Muslim communities, um, especially since 2015. And people use the word surveillance quite a lot. And surveillance makes you think of sort of like... Sort big Brother. Big Brother and like mm-hmm. helicopters flying over, over. But actually, this is almost so banal. It's it's done by administration. It's And, you know, the examples that I've heard, for instance, have been of mums where they've had children in primary schools. And um, another child has said to this Muslim child, you know, go on, draw a gun. So he's drawn a gun. He's a primary school kid. And that has meant that he's been referred. And that mum carried that. So that mum had to come in for a conversation with her teacher. Mm -hmm. And that mum then carries around the impact of that for months. She didn't tell anybody, but like it plays on her mind. So this is kind of cumulative effect on her mental health so you have this kind of policy that starts to impact really directly on um children their families and then the wider community Mm. as well 
Um, yeah. I mean, I think in the last set of figures, there was something like 841 Muslim children were referred to prevent under the age of 15. Mm. Mm-hmm. And because it's under safeguarding, it is... And that was in one year, That was right? in one yeah. year. Yeah. And in another year, it was like uh, 1,500. Yeah. But that is like, you're basically getting a phone call from somebody at school saying, we think your child is being harmed and we think you're responsible. And yeah. the tiniest of those proportions are taken further. And we don't even know what that means being taken mm-hmm. further because it's so kind of opaque. But if that happened to middle-class children who are white, there would be an absolute uproar about it, but there isn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the way the sketch addressed this is through the interaction between a journalist uh, and Ofsted inspector. Mm-hmm. How much of this has been kind of based in your, on your interaction with Ofsted inspectors or mm-hmm. with people in that those sort of positions of power? I mean, the content of pretty much all the, the sketches that you're going to hear are, are inspired by real life encounters mm-hmm. and conversations that we've had um, with people in communities and um, yeah. Because mm-hmm. the thing that I felt like, I don't know if I can laugh at this sketch, was because the offset inspector was such a buffoon. And I was like, I don't want him to seem um, harmless because of his buffoonery. Mm. His buffoonery will cost mm. communities a lot and will yeah. cost children a lot. Yeah. And so it made me more angry <laughs> than it yeah. did. Like, do you know what yeah. I mean? Like, I could see the joke, but I was also furious. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is that, have you, this is what I'm wondering is, are you kind of saying offset on? aren't fit to do this but all, and I can see that you're saying this is a ludicrous thing in and of itself this mm-hmm. makes no sense um but I think what I worry is that people the, the idea that hijab is so rooted in a very reductive notion of sexualization of women and that women in that women and girls in that um train in that vein of discussion have no agency to select to choose to say this is what this means to me I'm not saying, you know, really young children do this. I feel like they probably just do what their parents are doing and do what their community is doing. And I know I did that when I was a kid. But I guess what I'm questioning is, do you feel like this discourse around hijab and sexualization is just never going to go away? Or do you think that actually, how how do we make it more complicated? Mm. Is there a way to kind of, are we taking the the buffoons out of the equation or are we just ignoring the community or Mm. where does it kind of sit for you Mm. i mean it's complicated and there's yeah you threw up many questions (laughs) but um, but i guess like it is totally as you touched on it's completely normal that there are intra-community conversations about the headscarf and about what age you know some muslims think it's appropriate for kids others don't in this case what really stood out was that ofsted had kind of waded in to a school that was actually a really outstanding school. So initially, the, the when the story broke, it was through a Sunday Times um, news piece. The Sunday Times journalist came to the school to interview the head teacher. The head teacher later reported in the kind of proceedings, it had been like a four-hour interview, a long kind of process. But the interview was boiled down to a kind of a really a three-minute kind of like conversation about um, plans, the conversations within the school where the, the administration were considering banning the headscarf for children and then that became the story but the reason that they were invited in, in the first place was because this school was really outstanding and it was it was hailed as the state primary school of the year in the Sunday Times because of its strong academic results and it was allegedly outperforming every other school in the UK in key government assessments despite the fact that 96% of its children didn't speak English as their first language and in that situation, what we when we when you go back to it, what you also what you have is communities in Newham, which is the borough across the whole of the country with the highest homelessness, where where families are dealing with really really high social inequalities, and 
and really um, kind of profound difficulties on a daily basis that in, that that then that becomes the issue that people want to talk about in those communities and offset want to wade in and say when we're meant to be making sure that schools are performing or that schools are performing well the kids have the opportunities they need that that's going to be the thing they make the issue out of I think is like really really like just says a lot about that body as a whole but I, I think it's really just hearing you talk about that I think there's it's and not to kind of go away from this mm. subject but I think there's such a strong parallel with the conversation we were just having about prisons mm. as well because in prisons it will be you know these are these are men who are in it's a it's a it's a violent environment it's an institutionally racist environment and so people are looking around for anything that might give them support and if it was any other religion and you were in prison and you suddenly became more religious that's great you know he's on the road to rehabilitation mm-hmm. um, because you're muslim and you suddenly grow a beard it that becomes the focus point not the fact that as the last chief inspector of prisons report states you know continuously muslim men disproportionately receive a lack of respect from staff, don't receive basic care, don't receive things like parcels and letters. And, and, you know, for me, there's that parallel, I think. You know, it's like, let's focus on the one thing that might be connected to your religion because... We don't we don't get it. We don't understand yeah. your religion. And it, yeah, but, and it links to that thing as well, which we mentioned earlier, which is when when it actually when faith is is actually been a positive influence from all of the young men we've worked with who've said yeah. that faith was positive for them when they were in prison, when they were coming out of prison, that that's anything that will be pulled out from under your feet, and and that will be the thing that will be said. That's the thing that's wrong in this situation. Like says a lot about what Islam can be, what, like what what it can mean, like literally just like that. I think what's hard, though, from when I think about public engagement on these issues and public engagement with institutions like schools and prisons, it's been sort of hammered home to us what these institutions are for. School is for learning, mm. prisons are for punishment. Mm. And I know that's reductive. Like, in my in my head and in my heart, I know that doesn't fully make sense. However, when a member of the public comes to me and says, look, I just think schools are for learning and the kids should be worried about their grades, not what they're wearing. And I'm kind of annoyed at parents for complicating the issue and making it about what you, what my child is wearing. Um, what do I say to them? Because I, I can go into a long spiel about what is a good learning environment for a child and should it be that the school work, in, work more harmoniously with the family and that should be the focus? Or how do we kind of engage with those who feel like it's really clear schools are just for learning and grades and exams and that will lead to more opportunities for kids. And if parents got in line with this institution, their kids would be better off. I'm, mm. I'm playing devil's advocate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Do you know yeah. what I mean? It's an, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Um, because it's kind of like, it's that notion that then that that body is neutral and that that ground is kind of fertile for everyone and we know that that just isn't the case so like and but yet what you've just said is the argument that we hear constantly in different in different conversations whether it's about eg oh why are you talking about prevent because actually you know we just care about kids we're just trying to safeguard children right. or why why are you talking about racism and sidetracking this conversation on eg i don't know all children's welfare as if every child is the same kind of like has the same context to their lives or why are you talking about it that's an accusation that we all hear regularly it's kind of like basically it's like you're throwing in some kind of distraction to the main issue when actually yeah. we know that like these contexts from from for many kids are 
the contexts themselves are violent and those those institutions are violent and there's and it is really difficult to kind of like to tackle that without fundamentally you know abolishing slash beginning again and the opportunities for that are obviously slim um which makes this work difficult i think i think i think sorry no, mm-hmm. no, no, no sorry Something that Latifa <laughs> just said reminded me of also what it's like to be someone of my generation, so I'm in my 30s, um, and having all of the embodied knowledge of what it's like to go through those institutions. Mm. So even my parents, for example, especially when we were at primary school, uh, me and my brother, they pretty much did fall in line with the institutions and we still lost so much. We were told really explicitly from a young age, my parents were told when we were really young, do not teach your kids your Urdu, which is our mother tongue, do not teach them this at home because they're not going to learn English fast enough and that it's going to affect their grades. That was in the early 80s. Now we, sorry, in the mid to late 80s, now we know that how, you know, how advanced bilingual children are and multilingual mm-hmm. kids are yeah. and um, how differently and positively their brains work. So there's a kind of, like, I hold on to that as, mm, as, yeah. as, as really an adult. Tragic. I'm like, it's I remember what tragic. we lost. Yeah, yeah. Because you you told us this and it was wrong. Yeah. But um, this is kind of, I think this is what happens with, I mean, we talk about Muslim communities, but I think this is the case with any marginalised communities. Course, they yeah. are constantly decontextualised from their heritage, from their history, mm. from the social and political economic context, because it's easier than to have some sort of control. And, mm. you know, for me, my biggest bugbear, and I think for me, the thing that really frames that is that acronym, B-A-M-E, <laughs> you know, which is like, let's tidy up black and brown people into these four mm. letters. You know, it's like, it's too it's too messy and difficult to get too close to, say, somebody who's Somali and lives in Ladbroke Grove. And you know what? They might actually be different to another Somali person in Manchester. Like, that's too difficult for, you know, a lot of people that work in the charity sector um, or think tanks. And I think... You know, some of the work that we've been doing at Maslaha actually is about, all of our work actually is about putting that context back in and saying our heritage, our bodies of knowledge that are so vital and have existed, you know, for for years in our communities and expertise is something that should be recognised and celebrated. And we can't work within the frameworks that are provided by other people. You know, mm. we're, we're going to lose. You mm. play by other people's rules, we'll lose. Yeah. I mean, and to go back um, to the Ofsted um, question that Neymar asked, because just because Ofsted plays such a part in the sketch, I guess um, you know, there's we, you know we do know from our work, for example, like um, I remember a few years ago speaking to the senior leadership at a school where they just had an Ofsted inspection, and they the school had uh, had wanted to speak to us about some of the stuff that came up in it that they were concerned about, and one of the questions that they were asked by an Ofsted inspector is, "What are you doing to offset the teaching at the local mosques?" So in that question, like an incredibly loaded question to the extent that the senior leadership at this school were saying to us, we felt uncomfortable at being asked this and they weren't Muslim themselves. So so basically, yeah, yeah Wait. your face your face is saying a lot name. Yeah. Ask. I don't feel back like I me. probably misunderstood this. Now yeah, yeah. It go, so go, go. Yeah. It's who as bad is as it sounds. Who to check on the madrasas? So the so the offset inspector said to the senior leadership at a school that is mostly Muslim, what are you doing? as a school, to offset the teaching at the local mosque. Offset the teaching. So, yeah, so the word offset and offset do sound similar. But, yeah, but basically just the fact that that, that then the school understood, Okay, wow, there is like and 
bear in mind that the senior leadership at the school is completely white, but yet that they could recognise that this is an issue. So that they understood that actually the mosques and the supplementary schools yeah. um, are being seen under a complete veil of, of suspicion. Um, right. And they didn't feel that that view was represented, I should add, by the hope by the by the team of inspectors. But it was but it was the fact that they were asked that by one inspector. But like more and more, it feels like there's there's a gulf developing between the reductive explanation for what a school is, which I mm. I said before, a school is for learning, um, and what teachers and staff at schools actually have to do in their day to day job. Of so course. therefore, like it's not just Muslims saying this is more complicated. I feel like the whole education system or you know, the bit that isn't attached to government, the bit that is, for want of a better word, frontline, could also do more to say we have to update public understanding of what a school is because it's not just to get kids through exams. Yeah, but I mean, and also, I guess we just we live in really difficult times where we live in a context of us. We've now been ex- experienced 10 years of austerity um, mm-hmm. and schools have been like many public services have borne the brunt of those cuts. And so what you see in schools is schools where teachers are tra- are performing the roles of all the other vital services and that have been cut, whether it's mental health support, whether it's family support, whether they're literally trying, they're helping families with their housing situations or trying to help families with maybe it's homelessness, maybe it's, you know, they're dealing with like really, really frontline issues around domestic violence because a lot of these really specialist and localised services have been cut. Um, and also then you've got the question over, which we've been looking at in one of our projects called Schools with Roots is, when as these local community spaces go, then there's less places for people to actually come together. So school is actually one of the few places that potentially yeah. a lot of people come together. So there is actually a lot of potential for schools to perform a kind of a role of community care. The issue is that schools have also become grounds in that context of of schools taking on many roles. One of the roles that they're expected to take on is this role of like border control, is this role of surveillance, which we see in the context of prevent. Mm-hmm. You know, and the, that's a massive, I guess that goes back to what we were saying about these institutions of trust and care and what prevents done to that. It creates a real gulf and it undercuts a lot of that potential. Did you guys ever see a film called The Class? No, no I didn't. It's no. a French film, but uh, it was, it wasn't, it's not as obscure as I'm making it sound. It had its day, <laughs> I believe you, right? Um, believe me, Ed, Ed the producer knows. <laughs> <laughs> it's about um, a French teacher. He's white middle class, and he he's got quite a mixed classroom. And there's there's one kid in particular who messes up a couple of times for various reasons. And he's just like he's being a teenager. He's being a bit obnoxious. He's he's becoming an adult and getting to grips with like what what does it mean for him to to be a grown up and who is he? And you know, it's not a perfect learning curve. And so he he does a couple of things that are bad, like in the school. He needs to be punished for them. And then, of course, he I think I guess he gets to like his third strike, and his teacher says, "I'm going to, like you now face exclusion essentially." And he tries to explain to the teacher, "Look, if you exclude me, my dad's going to send me back to where his family are from, which I think was Cameroon. And so I don't th- there are higher consequences for me." Both it just highlighted to me there are higher consequences for him both in the institution and at home, mm. and he was not pretending that his parents were perfect or that their their disciplinary methods were brilliant, but that that's that is what seemed culturally appropriate to them to be like look if you're they were trying to get him to be what the school was trying to get him to be which was a sensible adult man, mm. um, making good decisions and he was in a really difficult time in his life just by virtue of being a teenager yeah. And the way the film sort of presented it, I think, was kind of like 
wow, this kid is getting it from all sides. Like, there's no... It's not that his parents don't love him and it's not that the school don't want good things for him, but that both are really fighting to find an effective way to preserve the other meaningful things in his life, like his mm. friend group, and see other mm. see other influences as positive and nurturing and guide him, show him through this particularly difficult phase in his life. And it's it stuck with me because of the complexity of it and because it it was kind of like two institutions, the family and the school, doing battle but also and, and the collateral was this kid yeah. mm. no um, I think totally it's that I guess it's that sense of like yeah just a real lack of empathy for or an ability an inability to empathize towards certain people and those certain people being e.g brown and black communities Muslim communities and we saw that happen with prevent recently yeah. where there was a lot of outrage I heard yeah. personally heard people I knew who, who are very into kind of like climate activism. And I, I heard a few people who had never seen utter the word prevent in their lives mm. going on and on about like, oh, I can't believe this. Um, it's been, you know, this referral to prevent that Extinction, extin- extinction Rebellion had. <laughs> God, um, that Extinction Rebellion had. And um, and there was outrage about that. And that outrage and that outrage came to the point where actually it seemed like, could this be the thing that legally challenges prevent after literally what has been two decades of like of oppression and like devastation to like families and communities that this is a thing that matters because that suffering can be seen as so much more legitimate than the suffering of Muslim communities and brown and black communities. But also the the Extinction Rebellion incident highlighted is it wasn't the list that was the problem. It was that Extinction Rebellion were on it. So it wasn't like the yeah, notion yeah, of prevent yeah. that was being criticised. Yeah. It was That's the association such an of clarification. Yeah. 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 So we've kind of like shown like a, a weird scenario of what the future could be um, for Muslim communities. And I wondered if you had any thoughts about where we're heading, what the future might look like for us. I'm very intrigued by the narrator's suggestion that mosques should be twinned with cocker spaniels <laughs> or could be twinned with cocker spaniels. And I wondered if this was um, a gentle digger, Sadiq Khan and his dog Luna. Wow, I mean, is I that, didn't even no? see that coming. Oh, yeah. I don't even know who dog, what the, the who dog is. What get, Luna get is? Get to know. Luna is his dog. Okay. Um, <laughs> he's a Muslim and he's got a dog. This is what I'm saying. This is. I the mean, future. that's this a is bit, the future. What is going on? This is the future for Muslims. This is if the future is Muslims. <laughs> this is what we need to do. We need to show integration with our pets. We need to be out there walking dogs. We need to. Be, <laughs> we need to be paper scooping. <laughs> that to me will be. Um, I still feel like I'm going to say something that I'm going to get like, I probably shouldn't say, but like, can we have like, could there be like moms and dogs leading prayers? Am I going to get banned for that? Is somebody going to no come comment. after me? Absolutely. I like no how comment. you two have just like I'm gonna thrown leave the room. Me, thrown this is going to come up at the next board meeting of the Inclusive Mosque of being like, how inclusive can we get people? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> where, Lots where, of different breeds, you know? Like, no it's comment. Guide dogs yeah. totally though, let's be real. You know. We're also yeah, dogs in Italy, did you say? Guide, guide dogs. Guide dogs, oh, yeah. guide yeah. dogs yeah. totally, yeah. 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 Oh, I don't know why I, why I brought Italy into that. Sorry. Because I said Italy and it's like Italy, I'm sorry. Um, but yeah, I think uh, everyone needs to go buy a piece of Cocker Spaniel and then, and then we will have achieved uh, full assimilation. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I think that's a really good point to end on. Yeah. Thank you, Naomi. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. 